luckily, I've been financially successful because of my time at Facebook. So the hard part now, though, was what do you do when you can do anything you want? When you have the financial freedom to, when you don't have any responsibilities. I didn't have kids. I didn't have any loans. Um, and based on my estimates, um, I could go on working, not working, for another 20 years. Mm. What do you do when you have all this freedom? Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we highlight the profiles and lessons learned from founders, investors, and entrepreneurs shaping and impacting the startup ecosystem of Asia. The life of a terrible student and the child of a diplomat. What ideas are evoked in your mind? What stories do you think are going to be told? Wild parties, police, and diplomatic immunity? Unfortunately, this is not that story. We don't have a CSI episode on our hands. However, the story is equally compelling and interesting. What if I told you I knew a kid who failed his high school programming class and had no interest in self-betterment or learning? Do you think this kid would become successful? Here is Isaac Faiz's story of how he ended up working for Facebook pre-IPO and joining one of the most prestigious teams in the world, the growth team, and how he made enough money to live for the next 20 years without having to work. The Facebook saga has a nice beginning, middle, and end, but Isaac's journey is far from over as he continues to contribute his skills and experience gained for the Asia region for a local startup that is doing very well. So if you have a child who seems disinterested, or if you yourself seem like you have nothing going on, or things are not going your way, maybe you could take some of Isaac's advice in considering the system you are in and learning how to think about managing the negative sides. In this episode, we talk about how school may not be a good fit for everyone, but how you can turn that into an opportunity. We discuss how Isaac broke into the open source scene in the early days of Malaysia and how that helped transition to getting a job at Facebook. Isaac also tells the little-known story of a small Malaysian company that Facebook acquired, which ended up contributing to hundreds of millions of user growth for Facebook. We talk about what it's like to work at Facebook and the concept of the growth team and what they do. Most importantly, Isaac shares how he dealt with a huge setback at the very company who gave him a huge career and so much. So often, entrepreneurs and hackers often gloss over the hardships of failure. I really appreciate Isaac opening up and sharing some of the issues that he faced at the end of his tenure at Facebook. There are some lessons you don't want to miss there. Let's dive right in and listen. Isaac Faiz, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you doing? Mm, doing all right. Yeah. Could have been a better morning. Could have gotten more sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were up, <laughs> up late last night, and uh, we woke it up early as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I just wanted to kind of uh, start from. Uh, I mean, I, I know you've done quite a few interviews, so maybe we could start from a different angle. Uh, for your childhood, was life easy or hard <laughs> growing up? Wow, that's a hard question. I didn't know we we're diving in that fast. Yes. Um, it was easy, la. In all fairness, it's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you describe that a little bit more? How, what do you mean easy? and what's, uh, What does that look like? I mean, at the end of the day, it's all relative, right? Yeah. Um, I had shelter. I had a room. I had food. Um, at the end, I mean, now as a 30, coming to 34 years old, you know, uh, those are what's that, those that's really important right it's a shelter the food the hard part though was the mindset i think as a kid um i was just extremely relaxed in a bad kind of way mm-hmm. right i didn't push myself um yeah i had it easy why, why do you think um 
you weren't pushing yourself from a young age? Um, lazy. Lazy? Lazy. Uh, I understood concepts pretty fast. I didn't have to struggle to understand things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I put my mind to it, I could get it done. Um, so, you know, it was a matter of do I want to do it or not? And laziness really was overcame me. Yeah. Do you think there was a factor of your peers, family, or what, what do you think can, exter- externally? Can't factor. I mean, yeah, you could, you could point a finger at everything, but it doesn't, not trying to blame anyone, right? Of course not. Of course not. Um, right. Yeah, a factor of family, a factor of uh, external external factors depends on who you mingle with uh, depends on the influence uh, what influences you right um, yeah but as a kid you know what do you know right yeah. I, I guess I wanted to touch upon that first because uh, what do you think about the Malaysian culture do you, do you think in Southeast Asia and maybe specifically Malaysia there's a very easygoing culture that yes. contributes to this yes definitely so, okay. but that being said I didn't grow up in Malaysia entirely okay um so my dad's a diplomat. So I've lived around the world. Easier said this way. Born in New York. Born in New York. Moved to Malaysia. Moved to Myanmar. Moved to Malaysia. Moved to Switzerland. Moved to Malaysia. Moved to New York by the age of 14. All right. Okay, and every time, um, even when I returned back to Malaysia, I would go to an international school. So it's not entirely Malaysian. From, so from what age to what age was that whole... 1 to 14. One born, to 14. When I was born until I was 14. So that was pretty... Uh, your whole entire the, adolescence. Right? Yeah, my formative years. Right. Your, for, your formative years. Um, and I, I know you got into only programming later in high school, but did you know before high school that this is something mm. you wanted to pursue? So during... Yeah, before high school... How did it go? I knew I wanted to do something involving computers and programming could have potentially been one of the outcomes. In high school, um, I was more attracted to the creative side of things. So I did film editing. In my high school, I did film editing, uh, Photoshop, Illustrator, um, played around with Flash, so more on the creative side. I did explore programming as well in high school, but that was a steep curve. I was learning C++ at the time. Uh, so this is back in 2003, 2004, learning C++ at the time. And I just enjoyed the creative side of things a lot more. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you were much more into creation versus kind of uh, hacking and building things. I would tinker. I so, tinker. so don't get me wrong. I liked computers, right? So I would play around with what I could get my hands on, uh, but not on the software level side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did want to pursue an interest, so I did take a class in high school, but I failed that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you failed in high school for yes. programming. I failed in high school. I failed programming in high school. Yeah, um, and. Would you say your early exposure of traveling around? So, I mean, I don't want to get into politics too much, but would you say you're more uh, liberal? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I guess liberal in the context uh, against uh, what would other Malaysians, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, so would you say your early exposure traveling around made you become liberal? Yes. Is your family also the same as you and the same mm, values? My siblings, we don't talk about it. Um, we really don't talk about it in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I assume my siblings have the same, more similar-ish values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, less uh, Malaysian conservative values, mm-hmm. right? 
And would you say your parents are more moderate and more, more conservative? More moderate. More moderate. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so, so that being said, I am 34. I've never had pressure from them to get married. I mm. think that's pretty that's not against unique. Asian. Yeah. yeah. Against yeah. Asian values. Right. Yeah. Um, and do you think your parents uh, kind of raised you this way on purpose or do you? Well, that's diving a little deep. Don't know how much how public I want to be about oh, yeah. that. It's <laughs> fair. If you don't want to share, it's okay. Um, but this is up to you to, yet, to edit. Um, but friend to friend, I feel that they've had a bit of a laissez-faire sort of attitude, mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. better or worse. Yeah. Right. The better side is it's really up to me to define. The worst side is... As a kid, you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. Like, uh, you be, don't have guidance. You have freedom, yeah. but you don't have guidance. Yeah. And for me, I think um, my parents also were very much similar. Uh, I mean, granted, I grew up in America, um, but they also grew up in a very strict Asian background. Sure, you know, uh, growing up in Vietnam, but uh, they were also very lazy fair and. I think you're right. You know, I think part of that also caused me to be also very lazy growing up. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think, you know, I, I asked my dad about this and he's, he says sometimes he wondered if he should have been more stricter or not. But, you know, I, I guess I, at the end, I don't regret too much because I was allowed to do what I wanted. But at the same time, there are some areas where I felt I was just really weak and I, I needed to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So then, uh, for school, um, you were all over the place, right? Oh, you know, living around the world. Yeah, living around sure. the world. Right? And then were, were you a good student? I was a terrible student. I hated studying. Um, I graduated with like a GPA of 2.2. 2, um, yeah, I I mean, now as an adult, I realize it a lot more. Um, I was a terrible student. I found studying tedious and not beneficial, mm-hmm. right? I've learned about myself. I much prefer practical over theory. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because practical, I can immediately apply. Um, as a student, you're just being taught things without understanding how it benefits you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was a terrible student, didn't pay attention in class, though I could get, I know I could have gotten A's if I tried, but. I didn't try. I didn't bother. You didn't see the the point of it. I didn't see the point. Yeah. yeah. And is this this? So you went to different countries and you were schooled in different countries. Mm-hmm. And across these different systems, would you say they were taught in the same way? I didn't. Uh, when I went to US at the age of ten, uh, so I, when we went to US, we were put into an American system, right? And then when I came back to Malaysia at the age of fourteen. Um, I went to Moncara International School, which is also an American system as well. Okay. So I assumed they were kept the same way. Honestly, I didn't pay much attention. I don't remember most of my teachers' names. Mm. Um, where I have friends who deep, who have fond memories of their teachers. Mm-hmm. I guess I didn't have that association. Yeah. Did like, is it no one reached out to you or no one stood out or did they see you as a student who wasn't to be bothered with because you weren't doing well? I think. A little bit of that, but I think it was also my own attitude. I didn't okay. want to get um, involved, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I didn't care. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, what do you think in terms of today? You know, I guess if you eventually start your own family, or you know, in general, how do you think society could do better? Like, what do you think we could do better for schooling? <laughs> That's the complicated one, right? Everyone has their own opinions. Yeah. Um, I think what we could do better for schooling actually is to talk 
to let children know about the trade-offs of the schooling you send them to. For example, uh, my education, going to a private school, going um, private school and studying around the world, lots of benefits like international exposure, um, good English. I definitely learned a lot more about world history compared to my Malaysian friends. Mm. Um, a lot of strong benefits in that. The cons of it, though, are I'm not rooted in the Malaysian systems, whereas my friends did your SPM, uh, O-levels, A-levels. I cannot connect them about that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mix well with the locals much because I never had the same upbringing. I'm very different from them. So those are some of the cons which aren't really spoken about. I don't have kindergarten friends. I don't have childhood friends. Um, so there's pros and cons out of each of the system. I think what we should be doing or the parents should be doing is talking to the children about the cons and helping them manage it. The pros, the pros are a given. Yeah. Everyone understands that. But managing the cons is what we should be, I believe adults should be doing, um, is, you know, like, all right, so this kid doesn't have childhood friends. What can we do to help with that? Or what can we do to help him adjust to being a mixed third culture kid who's part of two different cultures? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what I feel the education system should be about is ignoring the pros are a given talking about how do we manage the cons of whatever system we choose and how did you kind of come to those those thoughts mm. i've come uh existential crisis um i think i'm naturally inclined to have these existential moments um and so you have an existential moment, you have a bit of a breakthrough, ladder, rinse, repeat a million times, right? And as I grew up, I want it all, you know? I want, I want the, what's a good example? You know, I want a, um, I want a fast car, but, you know, they're not cheap, right? There's trade-offs in life. Um, and you can't have it all because if you have one thing, there has to be a particular trade-off. Um, right. So now when I look at decisions, I look at, all right, what is the trade-off of this decision and how do you manage that trade-off? Okay. And so I guess at this point in time, you're kind of bumbling through high school, uh, and you're probably in Malaysia now, right? In high school, I was in Malaysia. Right. Okay. And then, uh. You eventually uh, take this programming course and you failed it, right? Yeah, I failed programming in high school. Yes. What did, at that point in time, did you hate it? Did you think no point to this or? No, I was just, I think one thing to be clear about is my last year of high school, my parents were posted to East Timor. Uh -huh. So in, when I was 17 for my final year of high school, my parents moved away, uh, leaving my elder brother and me. And eventually in the second semester, my younger brother as well to sort of fend for ourselves. Mm. Right. Um, as a kid, that sounds amazing. And it was, <laughs> don't get me wrong. It was amazing, yeah. but I didn't have the focus or discipline to manage that. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, I, I just 
stumble. I did, it didn't give me a bad impression of programming. It's just uh, I didn't give a crap didn't attitude. Give a crap. Okay. <laughs> and then eventually you graduate, right? <laughs> Luckily. Yeah. With a, a 2.2, 2.4 or something yeah, like that, Yeah, right? low GPA. Low, low GPA. And then you somehow get this job as a, an IT guy. Yes. Uh, how did you get that job? So that's uh, a stroke of luck. So I graduated in 2004, May 29th, 2004. Um, and my parents were living away at the time. They were living in East Timor. Um, after graduation, they moved back to East Timor. Oh, I mean, they came to visit me for the graduation. Mm-hmm. They traveled back. And freedom. Like, I... To be explicitly clear, so in my last year of high school, I didn't look at colleges. I didn't look at universities. I didn't do anything. Right. Um, I didn't have the pressure. Uh, I didn't have the guidance. Um, And I guess because my friends at the time were all international friends, um, they all already had plans. They would go back to their home countries and go to their university systems there. Mm. And it didn't really strike me as, hey, maybe this is something I should do as well. Um, yeah, so I stumbled along in the last year of high school, managed to graduate somehow. Uh, parents uh, went back to East Timor after visiting me for graduation. And because there was no pressure, I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um I was just at home, you know, I can't remember what I was doing, probably trying to watch anime or something back in <laughs> the time. Um, and then eventually I get a call from a friend. Uh, his family friend needs an IT guy. And the first person they think of is me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, sure. Um, let me give it a try. And that's how I got started. Um, that's how I got my first job. They had me, I thought I would, I was hired as their IT guy because natural inclination towards computers. Um, but eventually during the job, maybe one month in, they asked me if I could program a system for them. I explicitly told them that um, I failed programming in high school, <laughs> but I will give it a try. Okay. Um, and maybe it was that pressure from the job, right? Yeah. So... I don't know how much further do you want me to dive into this. Keep going. So, like, yeah. I mean, essentially, it sounds like they they provided you a structure that you may have needed, a, a structure and uh, expectation okay. that I that I definitely needed as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, continuing the story. Uh, so they told me they would like me to program a system, and they gave me a thick PHP programming book. It was at least three inches thick, PHP four. I told them that, hey, I failed programming in high school, but I would give it a try. So I would read the book end to end, and I encountered some concepts I had was struggling with in high school. But for example, uh, classes and objects, object-oriented programming. And I remember reading the book back and forth, and then one day it just clicked. I was like, oh, okay, that makes complete sense now um and i just went with it yeah i mean that sounds a little bit strange i i I, growing up as well i was interested in computers had an inclination i went i even went to like computer science camp uh, in vassar college was very nerdy um i had a thick c plus plus book yeah sure didn't we all i I couldn't read it though i couldn't finish it end to end so how did you get through this book i think 
There's a few differences, though. Um, the first one is really one the language matters a lot. Okay. Right. So to be technical, C++ is a little strict is a lot stricter than PHP. PHP has a lot more flexibility in it. Uh, PHP doesn't have PHP doesn't care about types, right? So I can put a string in it or I can put an integer in it. Um, so that made it a lot easier. PHP had a very easy uh, feedback loops. So what PHP does is it you can set up a web page and all you have to do is refresh your web page and it'll load the code again. Mm-hmm. C++ doesn't really do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to build the system, then execute it. Um, so I think PHP was a, at the time was a really great uh, introduction for me to dip my toes in versus mm-hmm. say having to manage memory in yeah. C++ or something like that. And in high school, and, what, what were they teaching then? C++. C++, okay. Yeah. So and the, the other effect was also that um, what they teach you in high school, building, say, command line tools, I find that really, I mean, as a kid, I found that really dull. Yeah. But the act of making a website that I could interact with, I could get an immediate feedback on, that was a lot more rewarding. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I guess you, so you finally kind of tackle this. You, some, you can, I mean, it was accessible. You got the yeah, concept. Yeah, it was right? accessible, yeah. Uh, and you found, I guess, a, an interest and a flow into yes. this? Yes, yeah. I did. And then you, like, eventually you built this system for them, right? Yeah, I didn't get far with it because eventually okay. uh, my dad called me up and asked me, Isaac, what are you doing? Why aren't you in college? <laughs> so I guess that was the signal I should apply to college. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a good segue. So you eventually get into, I guess, so your father must have been the impetus and you, you apply to college and you get into APU college. Yeah. So uh, I, yeah, my dad called me up um, more the summary was, why the fuck aren't you in college? <laughs> right. Okay. Um, probably better wording than that, but essentially, why aren't you in college? So then I put pressure on myself. All right, I guess I should go to college, right? Uh, maybe it's about three, four months in um, into me working. And I applied to a few colleges, but because of my, naturally because of my low grades, I don't get in. But I did manage to get into a university uh at that time, it was wasn't called was a college, right? So it was called APIT, uh, Asia Pacific Institute of Information and Technology, now known as APU, Asian, uh, Pacific, Asian Pacific University. Okay. Yeah. How did you get in with such a low GPA? Uh, luck, I guess. Luck. So I guess yeah. they, were, they were just taking you and they yeah. got in. Um, okay, and then but it's also interesting further that you eventually get to APU. But then you actually transferred to Monash University. Mm-hmm. How is that possible? Did you do really well? Yeah, APU? I did really well at APU. Okay. So, so there's more to that story as well. Um, when I went to AP, I think also one of the reasons I was able to get into APU was I got into the foundation year. Right. Oh, okay. So the foundation year is supposed to help set you up for the rest of your university experience. Um, so I got into the foundation year. And then I remember my dad explicitly pressured them to get me into the first year because I went to international school, mm-hmm. Wuha. Um, so when I entered the first year, where they would teach you introduction to programming, uh, operating systems, data structures and algorithms, your basic, um, your standard university classes, um, for computer science. For, for computer science. My six months of me hacking away at my own on my own 
I had already understood all these concepts,、mm. right? So school was pretty easy for me. University was first year of Apple was pretty easy for me because my six months of hacking and my natural interest in computers really assisted me there, helped me、mm. there.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you already had solved a lot of these issues and concepts. Yeah. From work. Yes. So and then、uh, you got into school,、yeah. you did well, and then、uh, that's how. But why did you want to transfer then? I. I want to transfer because I wanted a better learning experience. So I was peaking when I was in Apple. I was peaking because、mm-hmm. of my familiarity I learned、uh, at the job, right?、Uh, and I wanted to be in an environment where I could learn and absorb more. And I thought Monash would be the best opportunity、mm-hmm. for that. And I thought、um, my classmates may have the Similar belief system I did in the like, hey, you know,、uh, what can we do to quickly get things, to quickly build things or whatnot?、Mm-hmm. Yeah,、mm-hmm. I was looking for a culture that could support that.、Mm-hmm. And I guess、uh, you did well enough to be able to transfer、yes. finally. And this is Monash University,、uh, Malaysia. In, in Malaysia, and it's affiliated to Australia. Yes, it's it is. So Monash University Malaysia is affiliated to Australia.、Uh, one thing they like to proudly say is that they will never state which、uh, campus you graduated from. <laughs> okay,、yeah. nice. so so technically you're part of this、uh, prestigious group of eight universities. Yeah, that was, was, yeah. so that's like,、uh, I mean, at the time I thought that'd be the most accessible within Malaysia,、mm-hmm. right?、Uh, apply for prestigious, apply for a prestigious university so that you. Yeah, you know, hopefully it'll be more challenging.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I didn't find Apple challenging at all. Yeah, and then、um, how, how? So what happened at Monash? Right, because eventually you you go there, and then <laughs>、uh, the story goes that you actually drop out of Monash. Right. So that's、uh, this is a coming of age story, isn't it? <laughs> yes.、Um, I get into Monash, and I do. So the interesting part about Monash is that I can also apply for courses in other、um, what do they call it again sections. So like I can apply for the law courses or I can apply for the economics courses. So I thought that was fa- fairly interesting as well.、Um, I the problem with my time at Monash、um, wasn't Monash. It was me managing myself.、Um, There's a lot more to the story as well. So before we get into Monash, during my time at Upbit, I started getting involved in the open source community.、Um, so that is, say, February 2005.、Uh, I learned about the PHP community in Malaysia, and I was like, "Hey, I've been hacking on PHP. Let's go meet up." And that was the taster for a much larger world for me. So. To set some time li- to understand the timelines a lot better,、uh, I joined Upbit in February 2005. I learned about this PHP community later in that same month, and as I get involved in this PHP community and learn more about the open source community, I got involved. W- I、um, the other people in this community were all already working professionals.、Um, And that was a huge source of knowledge. I learned so much from getting involved with the open source community.、Um, I started getting jobs from there as well. Like, hey, could you do this freelance job for me?、Um, I built a lot of connections, which have lasted till this day.、Um, I think that's definitely one of the most fascinating parts.、Um, yeah. So during my time at Monash, I had schooling. 
I started doing freelance jobs. Uh, I started taking some ownership of this community as well. I started running meetups. And I tried to have a social life. Mm. Right. So trying to juggle all three at the same time um, was extremely hard and I failed at it. So that's why I dropped out of Monash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is it because you felt that the real world tangible uh, experience and also maybe that the social things aspect were more important than the schooling? Or? Uh, it was more rewarding than the schooling, right? Because making money is rewarding. Simple yeah. as that, right? Making money is rewarding. But making an impact is also rewarding. So in school, I just feel like I'm, con- I'm a consumer, mm-hmm. right? I'm just consuming things, whether it's beneficial or not. Who knows? But, you know, learning things on the side uh, and being able to apply them immediately, um, that in itself was extremely rewarding. Yeah. And I guess if you were to go kind of go back and do it again, you would probably would finish your school, right? Or- I would I would probably finish it in the same course as my high school. I'll just, just pass good through. enough to pass. Yeah. Good enough to pass so I can get a degree. Um, yeah, that's about it, really. Yeah. But the, I guess... And I think that's a, a good point. You know, one of Paul Graham's essays is about, um, you know, what, what you'd wish you have known. And yeah, he, he absolutely. Says, if you go to school, you could treat it as a day job, but it should not prevent you from solving hard problems. Mm. And I guess in that sense, you were kind of doing that, but you, you kind of give up the school piece. Like, you know, some, some people still need a job to feed themselves, but you could still work on real problems. Sure. Right. Um, okay. So then uh, this is kind of like, you know, the early beginnings of your early career because you start actually working, kind of going to school, and then yeah. the work continues even after you drop off, right? Uh, there's a clear pattern of leadership, like you said. And you started doing all these meetups, but actually leading them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being part of the community. Uh, you were hacking, you were doing open source, you were doing programming competitions that you were winning, yes. right? And, um, you know, so out, out of all these experiences, you know, I saw that you did some work for like uh, Asterix, which is like related to call centers, yes. right? And then uh, Youth Says, RSB, now, out of all of these projects, um, these were just freelance projects? Yeah, these are freelance projects. Okay, so that's why you were jumping around a bit. Yes. Right? Uh, which of these opportunities really stood out to you the most and why? Uh, hard to say. Hard to say. Um, one... One was desperation for money, right? So you take up a job because you need cash, right? Um, some was, uh, some was, oh, okay, you get to work with cool people as well. Yeah, um, yeah it's hard. It's hard to say which one stood out for me. Um, they all stood out for very different reasons. Um, RSB was interesting because we were trying to be a Ruby on Rails shop. Um, okay. and we were one of the first in, we were I, probably the first in Malaysia. Uh, the people I worked with, uh, Kamal Fares, Keegan Gan, uh, Sean Shantan, uh, Sen Sentan, um, we were pioneers, um, for better or worse. The worst part is we didn't really know what we we're doing. <laughs> um, in the whole Ruby on Rails in Malaysia, that's how I got introduced to them because I was, writing blog articles about Ruby on Rails. And it was like, okay, let's see how we can use this technology to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and those blog articles about Ruby on Rails also got me introduced to Youth Says. Um, people know it better now as says.my and the founders Kylie Ung, Joel Neo. Um, right, and that was interesting because 
I think the most interesting part about that is to see how something 13, 14 years ago, only in hindsight, you can see where, how has everyone grown from where we started many years ago? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a very good point. And it also relates back to that Paul, Paul Graham article. And he, he points out that, you know, if you're going to school and looking around your friends, um, everyone looks the same. Right. But if you were to fast forward, you know, like 10, 20 years later, mm. there's only a few guys who really will stand out. But if you look back back then, anyone could have done it probably. Sure. Right. And, as, and it does take time to kind of unfold your journey and, and yeah. you see where, where you go and hit success. Right. Okay. Um, so I guess some of the lessons are what, you know, embed yourself into a community, surround yourself with people who are making things happen. Yeah. Um, you know, you necessarily don't need school, but I guess it does make some things easier. It, uh, yes. <laughs> and, and then your advice would be what to, I, I saw in one of your presentations that you gave about your, your experiences, what, hack, 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 code, code, code. Sure. Right. I guess very similar to, you know, if you want to solve something, you have to practice a lot, right? Yes. Um, and eventually this kind of uh, leads to you applying to Facebook in Malaysia. <laughs> right? So what, what's the story there? How does that happen? That was luck, really. Um, combination of luck and skill. We'll talk about the luck first um, because this is really, it was completely out of my control. February 2010, 10 years ago, Facebook acquired a Malaysian company and very, very few Malaysians even know about this, uh, which is really sad because I think this is an accomplishment we should talk about as Malaysia to encourage other Malaysians to build great things. Um, so February, February 2010, Facebook acquires a company called Octazen. I remember I heard about this when I was at a conference in Malaysia. Um, I opened up TechCrunch, a Twitter, and then all my Malaysian friends were like, huh, what company did Facebook acquire? It's called Octazen. And then I, um, I closed the books on that. I was like, all right, that's, I guess that's that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, company acquired, move on. I think sometime in April 2010, uh, my friend shares a link with me about Facebook Malaysia hiring people. I was like, holy shit, really? Um, I'm allowed to curse, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, just for emphasis. Um, yeah, so it's like 2010, my, April 2010, my friend sends me a link. Hey, Facebook Malaysia is hiring. I was like, oh crap. Should I apply? Um, will I even get in? So all these doubts crop, uh, crop into my mind. Um, I don't really, what my friend tells me is that I was filled with doubts. I, Needed reassurance that I could apply. Uh, so I simply, I tried, right? So I applied um, and, oh, that, so that's the luck part. The luck part was Facebook acquired a Malaysian company. That is completely out of my yeah. control. Right, so now it's the skill part. So I applied. Um, I got past the first, the first thing they sent me was a, programming quiz hey solve this group this quiz about scraping a website mm -hmm. and luckily a lot of my past experience involves scraping websites mm -hmm. so that really helped yeah that's one of the skill parts um so all right so i passed the first quiz um then i get another call for an interview and then i go have an interview um, they asked me, all right, why did you do it this way? Uh, so the interview was with my colleague, Kenneth Fu. Yeah. Um, so, you know, why did you do it this way? I explained my reasonings, you know, like I did, uh, 
I did string searching or regex search versus say XML parsing for these reasons. Um, XML parsing may not be correct because HTML is not necessarily correct. Yada, yada, yada. Um, and then how did it go? I think about a week later, I get a call back. Hey, could you come in on this day for an interview? Mm. Of course, you know, yeah. like how could you turn them down? Yeah. So I, I went in um, and I had three interviews. I had an interview with Javier Olivan, um, who is the VP of growth right now. I had an interview oh. with Ashwin, um, Ash, can't remember his last name. And I can't remember the third guy. Yeah. So those three interviews, and then silence. It was silence for a month. <laughs> right. So I was like, all right, I didn't get a yes or a no. What's going on? It's been about a month. So I messaged, I emailed Kenneth like, hey, haven't heard back from you. How are you doing? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, hi. Um, HR will reach out to you or someone will contact you. So yeah. I was like, all right, I guess it's another interview process, right? Yeah. Um, so I talked to this, well, communicating with this person and Facebook 2010 is very US centric. They're like, Hey, can we set up a time for 12 PM San Francisco time? I politely replied back. Um, yeah, we can, but that's 3 AM, <laughs> 3 AM Malaysia time. I was like, Oh, thank you very much. Like, all right, just to let you know, <laughs> this is 3 AM Malaysia time. Um, because you're not going to say no, right? Course, it's Facebook. Not. You're yeah, not going to say yeah. no. So that day come 3 a.m. I'm like, oh God, I can't believe I'm doing another interview at 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, 3 a.m. comes. Uh, oh, so they told me they would call. 3 a.m. comes. No call is in. 3.05. Nothing yet. 3.10. I message them. Hey, are you still there? <laughs> and they emailed back. Like, oh yeah, sorry. We're busy setting up. Uh, and eventually they call. And then... I'm like, all right, let's do this interview. Let's continue the interview process, right? Um, yeah. And then they're like, oh, congratulations. We'd like to give you an offer. Oh. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah. So that's how, um, yeah, that's how I managed to get in. So uh, how you hacked your way into Facebook eventually. Yeah, eventually. Um, yeah. Very surprising. So there, so there's kind of two parts of that, right? So you, you want to highlight the story of Octazen, right? Yes. How often does this happen that like a big company like Facebook will go around the world acquiring small companies? Rare. Uh, very rare. So the, the unique part about Octazen was the value they provided. Um, what Octazen does is Octazen, <laughs> Octazen helped Facebook to ena- help enabled Facebook's growth. What Octazen does is if you enter your web email password, uh, your web email and your web email password, we would take your credentials and use it to find email addresses you can uh, contact. It's really simple stuff. It's just a web scraper, which needs your credentials. Um, but these credentials, uh, so the email addresses we found would be used in Facebook systems, mm-hmm. right? And this was the, that was the beauty of it. So back in 2010, when Facebook was growing extremely rapidly, half of those contacts came from the systems that Octazen uh, implemented. And I guess because of the simplicity of it, nobody thought about making it into a business, mm-hmm. right? 
And nobody thought about, um, you know, creating this as a library that people could use. Uh, Kenneth told me that there was maybe one other guy in the world who did it, uh, but Octazen did it better. Right. Mm -hmm. It's such an extremely niche product that provided the value that Facebook needed, such that Facebook, you know, decided to acquire it. So let's dig at that a little bit more. Um, How can one position themselves to be in a path of like a a big company like Facebook then? Or other people who may acquire, need to acquire? I don't really have the answer for that. Mm -hmm. The simplest way to put it is what value are you providing? Right. Uh, when it comes down to business, that's really it. What value are you providing and what are people willing to pay for it? Um, the value could be in the services you provide. The value could be in the um, talent that your team has as well. Um, what is it called again? It's called an aquahire, mm-hmm. right? Yes. It's called an aquahire. So you may have a talented team, but a crap product still. Right. So that could potentially be an aquahire as well. Yeah. But they have the skill set that you. Do they have the skill set that the larger company needs? Yes. To acquire for new technology yes. or something. Okay. So then uh, you were accepted uh, and this was under the growth team. Yes. And this is back then when uh, I guess Facebook had really this big focus on growth, right? Yep. And I guess for some context, I think uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong because I did some research for this. Uh, 2007, uh, Chamath Palapatia was Chamath. hired to make uh, Facebook grow faster. Yes. Right? And uh, Mark exactly. Zuckerberg was quoted in 2017 something about like uh, one of the most important product features was focusing on actually growth as a product, right? Mm. And this was kind of like before uh, Facebook was the size of you know MySpace, which was like about 45 sure. million users. And sure. eventually they had a focus on getting to 100 million users, which eventually came to you know becoming 1 billion users. Yep. And yep. then even after that, the next billion users, yep. right? And I guess uh, if you're to distill what the growth team really does, right, is you know, how you acquire users, yep. how to get users to an aha moment faster, and then I guess developing core engagement around that, yes. right? I guess you know what what Chamath probably did really well was getting one the right people around that, right? Sure. Uh, building a right framework and a very concise, distilled goal. Sure. With hyper focus around yes. the simple idea of core product value. Sure. And then developing and wrapping a culture around that. Mm. And I guess you were one of these uh, amazing people who got to be part of this. Team. I got lucky, lah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's luck, right? right. That's all luck. So yeah. you came around the time before the the, the billion goal, I guess. Yes. Right? Right. Yes, when I came around the time of the 400 to 450 million. Yeah. And this was a very critical time because Absolutely. Uh, Facebook was going global, right? Yes. Which is like why I guess they made an, uh, an acquisition in, yes. in Malaysia. Uh, and they had this kind of growth oh. identity issue, right? Where uh, they had core product value in US that kind of didn't match to what they were expanding to around the world. You know, the, there was this great example of, um, you know, a, a team in Japan for Facebook saying, maybe you should add blood type value to the profile, right? <laughs> sure. Um, so do you, do you remember anything like that in your early days that you that was unique to Malaysia, I guess, or your contribution so, of what you worked on? The work I did wasn't specifically to um, add features for particular countries. Okay. Right. Like the the blood type thing, I think, is a great example. So to explain a little bit more, um, blood type is a huge thing in Japan. It the, Some people use it as a means to find out who, out who they should be dating with. Mm-hmm. Right. It's so important that... Uh, be, Facebook decided to put it in your Facebook profile. Yeah. Uh, my team didn't do that specifically. Okay. Um, the premise of the growth team is also to how can we look at data to influence our decisions? How can we experiment um, to increase 
uh, user engagement and user growth, and also look at things like retention, uh, resurrections, and drop-offs as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but my work unfortunately didn't look into that, though I was privy to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your your main work would be the this contact importer. Yes, the first two earlier, years, right? Yeah. It sounds like you like you mentioned. It sounds very simple, it's, right? It is very um, simple. <laughs> but you know, how successful was this really? <laughs> it was extremely successful. Uh, if it was for me, I would think Facebook was successful because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how successful was it? So, when I joined the team, Facebook was growing at one million users a day, and at least half of those came from the contact importer itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the contact importer wasn't just successful for new users; it was also successful. It was not just successful for gaining new users; it was also successful for retaining existing users users as well. Mm-hmm. So what Facebook discovered was that as a social network, for you to remain on a social network, you need to have at least 10 friends. It's a social network. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So the first thing that one, the first thing that Facebook does is Facebook prompts you to for your web email and your web email password so that we could get these credentials and find you those first friends. Mm-hmm. And if those if those email addresses don't exist on Facebook, you could invite them as well. Mm-hmm. So when I left that team in late 2012, we were sending 5 million invites a day and 3 million friend requests a day. Yeah. Insane growth, basically. Insane, important growth important, that helps yes. to drive new users and engagement. Which I guess led to the, the first billion users. Right? Yeah, definitely. Essentially. Uh, and I guess the growth team is essentially responsible for you know, yes. hundreds of millions of new users. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, eventually you worked there two years. And then mm-hmm. uh, why did you leave that team within Facebook? So what's your next goal after hitting 1 billion users, right? <laughs> yes. um, the next goal after hitting 1 billion users is hitting 2 billion users. Yeah. So back in 2012, back in 2012, when we hit 1 billion users, um, we're starting looking at the next 1 billion, right? And if you look at the demographics, uh, if you look at the demographics, um, hitting the next 1 billion users would have been really difficult. So this is back in 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, hitting the next 1 billion would have been really difficult. Most of the accessible internet population had already been reached. Mm-hmm. Um, mobile was still growing. So we were looking, okay, um, looking at the numbers, in order to reach the next 1 billion, we really have to target people on their mobile devices. Um, because mobile, uh, the cellular networks, covered 95% of the world's population. So we had to target cellular networks. Um, but the harder part, though, was even if they had the cellular, even if people had the mobile devices, they were not getting online because the internet was too expensive. People would rather pay for food than the internet. People didn't see, and if they knew, if they could pay for internet, they didn't see the value of it. So we literally had to get people online for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And that was Facebook's next goal, uh, internet.org. Yeah. That, that actually reminds me of my own experience when I started Easy Taxi. Mm-hmm. Uh, mobile phone penetration for taxi drivers was still low. Extremely low. So yes. what we ended up doing was having to actually buy mobile phones yes. and then actually financing them. Yep. And uh, you know, getting people to actually use this new technology, and I guess that's essentially what you were doing, but for the whole world for internet, yeah. basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, what was your main role in that then? I was the starting one, of the starting engineers on that. Uh, yeah, one of the starting engineers on it. Uh, three of us, and my main goal was 
as always, how do we make this a success? Right. So, and then that, what I do along those lines always changes. Yeah. Okay. That's such a crazy high level goal. I'm going to get a billion users, right? Yep. And, and you know, like most startups, you don't start off like that, right? You kind of focus on a niche and this kind of thing, right? Sure. So what is actually for a company like Facebook, who's looking to acquire the next billion, what is the first few steps? Well, when you're at Facebook size, the truth is there's always things internally that you can leverage. Yeah. So lucky for us, uh, we already had a partner team working with mobile carriers, right? But they are partner engineers, um, which is different than software engineers. It's a loose line. Um, so the idea is how can we better work together with the mobile carrier companies? Uh, we had an internal portal which we could use to manage the mobile carriers, but it was dated, right? Yeah. Um, so the first thing, the first few things we did was how do we update this mobile portal for the mobile carrier so that we could entice them to get online to the platform? Uh, so we made services, we made interactions to the mobile carriers a lot easier. We made things like, um, yeah, in general, we made, we improved our business relationships with the mobile carriers, not just on the business development side, but also on the technical and engineering side as well. Uh, for example, uh, when working with mobile carriers to reduce the cost, some of the things we, on a technical level, um, how do we, how do we get mobile carriers to make Facebook free to use, right? we have to give them our IP list so that they could whitelist our IP addresses. Previously, there was this was communicated via email. Mm -hmm. This has a lot of issues with people getting older files, older versions, what stuff is being transferred around. Um, and even this IP list wasn't managed properly. So what we would do is we would go in, we'd make a system that would help to export this IP list um, and get them to acknowledge it such that it's been verified. So making things like uh, managing these IP lists was one of the small things we did to make the mobile carrier's lives easier. Um, some other things we did was we would help if we saw people coming in from um, blacklist IPs, we would try to redirect users to whitelisted IPs. Mm -hmm. So really trying to improve the user experience for mobile carriers, which you as an average Facebook user would never know and see. Um, we would make the connections between Facebook and your mobile carrier uh, have less hops. We would try to reduce, find ways we can reduce costs for mobile carriers, all to entice them to sign up to this system. Yeah. So, so essentially, strategically, you're going straight to where your next set of users are, but mm -hmm. you realize you can't reach them. Yes. So uh, as a business decision, you focus on what's the probably highest reach, highest impact, which mm -hmm. is a telco probably, right? Yes. And then what you have to end up doing is building an infrastructure that doesn't exist, right? No, the infrastructure, uh, the infrastructure already, so the, the best part was the infrastructure already exists. It was improving it and improving the yeah. processes. Yeah. yeah. Reducing frictions. Reducing waste. Yeah. And yeah. Is, is it like introducing new technologies or no. just upgrading? Uh, refactoring, refactoring, refactoring okay. uh, reorganizing, uh, treating infrastructure as a product, mm -hmm. right? Such that rather than treating it as something you forget about, treating it as a product for them to use. Mm -hmm. And then so you kind of start this journey and you start working with these telcos and optimizing. And uh, I guess while you're doing this, you were eventually transferred to Vancouver? Yes. Uh, why were you transferred to Vancouver? That was out of my own request. Oh, okay. um, so... I was working in Malaysia. I was still working in Malaysia uh, for two years, and I really wanted out um, yeah. out of Malaysia because I was. I felt like I was 
missing everything, right? Mm -hmm. Facebook was growing rapidly. I did get to travel to US every six months or so, Mm -hmm. um, which was super fun. Um, But I felt I was missing the exciting growth. Um, I felt I could do more impact if I was closer to HQ. I felt being a remote employee, um, you are treated differently. I Mm -hmm. felt like I was being treated more as an outsourcing uh, oh, company than anything else. I felt like I wasn't being included in the larger things. I felt my growth was stunted as well. Um, yeah, I felt that peers, which even though we joined at the same time, you know, just grew a lot faster because they were in HQ mm-hmm. compared to me being remote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to move out, mm-hmm. uh, get closer to the HQ as soon as possible. And what was your job in Vancouver then? It was it was leading the Internet Org team in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, did they want to move the the main group to no. start it in Vancouver, or uh, no? It was just an opportunity. Just the main the main here. Internet Org was still running out of Palo Alto, Menlo Park at the time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's just the first satellite office for Internet Org mm-hmm. then. Okay. So what what kind of, what's the process of going into setting up a satellite office for a company like Facebook? This was pretty easy actually. So for Vancouver is an exception. Uh, Vancouver is an exception because the people who were relocated there um, had their H-1Bs, the U.S. visas to work, rejected. So ah, okay. they were already selected to work at Facebook. They just couldn't work in U.S. Because the H-1B Because are, of the lot, H-1B visa lottery, lottery issue. System, yeah, right? the lottery system. Yeah. Right. So, so the process was really easy. We, we already had the people to fill in the positions. We just didn't have a place to put them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so then it's just uh, you have the people and you have the office set up already and it's just probably getting everyone together too. It's just getting everyone together versus okay. setting up a new office, having to hire people mm, and search, right? Okay. What's your favorite memory from Vancouver? Uh, segue a little bit. So my sister now is studying in Vancouver. So I went to visit them, visit her uh, September of 2019, so just last year. And it was very, very fond memories. Um Vancouver is chill. It's great as a sleepy city, as a small city. I think it's pretty nice. Um, the beaches are only five minutes away from the office, mm-hmm. fifteen minutes away to get a fifteen-minute walk. By the way, um, to go snowboarding is a fifteen-minute drive. Uh, I had colleagues who would go to work early and then leave work early so that they could go to the mountains, like at four or five p.m. Um, and enjoy the rest of the day. Uh, those were really fun. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go to Whistler, Whistler is one of the um, Olympic mountains, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That is only a two-hour drive away. Um, So you want outdoors. Uh, Vancouver is pretty amazing for that. Okay. And so you move to Vancouver and you're doing internet org from Vancouver. Um, Eventually, you get hired for technical lead for internet org in Menlo Park. I got transferred to yeah, Menlo Park. Transferred. I got okay. transferred to Menlo Park, yeah. I was still technical lead, yeah. Right, so you were always technical lead. Yes. And was that part of the plan always? Or? Yeah, that was part of the plan. Okay, so right. first, so first move to Vancouver. First Vancouver, then Menlo Park, where HQ was. So, I mean, so for a very big project like Internet Org, isn't being technical lead a very big deal? Yes. Yeah. So how, how many engineers were you responsible for? Uh, max was about 10. And what does a technical technical lead in Facebook actually do? <laughs> So you just you ensure that people are developing um, correctly. That's super big, but you ensure that people are using the right frameworks. You ensure that um, the right technical choices are being made. Yeah. Um, you assist them 
to make sure that they're going down the right path, mm-hmm. uh, right technical path. Can you walk me through, for example, how product features get developed and pushed out? Oh, this is a... Uh, well, for internet.org, it's a little bit different, right? So yeah. we weren't developing for users per se, right? We were develop- Our users were the mobile carriers. Yeah. So we got to, we didn't do much in terms of experimentation, mm-hmm. um, at least for my team. We didn't do much in terms of experimentation. Uh, for my team, uh, product features were, came from the product managers or even from feedback with our, um, what do we call them? Mobile carrier support, was it? That helps to, mm-hmm. The first line of defense with the mobile carriers who help to support them, they would give us feedback about, hey, we regularly get these requests. Do you think you can make this easier for us? Right. So that's how our product decisions were being made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, uh, you know, it, this is around mid-2016 that you probably kind of worked through your whole experience uh, yeah. at Facebook, right? And uh, I guess, what do you think some of your, your key takeaways would be? Because, uh, you know, especially being a part of the growth team. Because uh, for me, like, you know, I've been kind of wrestling with, you know, venture scaling and building startups for the past eight years as well. And, and what, what I realized is that, you know, for the most of startups, they'll fall into a bucket where you probably don't even need to be thinking about growth. Sure. They, they haven't actually identified what is a core product value or sure. they haven't really understood, you know, product market fit very well. Right. Um, you know, it's very shallow. You get some traction. You know, and then you kind of start to grow, but then you know, if you don't really understand what you're doing and why, uh, you always see this kind of huge fall off. You mm. know, uh, and I think you know, Chamath has this really great uh, quote. You know, core product value is very elusive, but most products don't have any. Sure. You know, if you're trying to scale on zero, you don't go anywhere. So, I mean, for you, you know, in terms of growth and being on that team, a very prestigious team, what is one of the key things you learned? Data. Uh, yeah, data. I don't think enough people put emphasis on the data and data analysis. Um, and understanding the data. So like, I think what I noticed coming back to Southeast Asia is, and visiting the startups, the startups don't have dash, data dashboards, right? Mm. Uh, data isn't upfront. Um, when you go to Facebook, at least back then, there were more dashboards about the numbers and the charts. Every day we talk about the data, uh, for better or worse. We talk about how, what has moved the needle. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of focus on hey, doing this experiment will get us this. Uh, but Facebook was in a very unique position such that because of our numbers, we could experiment so easily. Correct. Yeah. So that's a, that brings up a very good point. So how much data should these you know smaller startups be looking I, at and how much experimentation? Because I, I, it feels that if you haven't really understood your product well, you know, overanalyzing data to the point where you're making decisions, micro-optimizations on nothing just doesn't get you nowhere. Absolutely. I think you definitely shouldn't overanalyze, but you should, your data should be accessible still, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, You should know what your, the easiest ones are, you should know what your user growth is every day, right? You should know what your retention is like, what your drop-offs are like. Um, If you have a funnel, you should know where do people drop off, right? Those are some very basic things. Uh, If you don't have the bandwidth for it, you shouldn't experiment. You should be, or you should control your experiments so that they're not all over the place, Um, such that you're not running too many experiments. Um, But you should be able, for whatever metric you're looking at, you should be able to tell why is this metric going up or why is this metric not going up? Where are you losing people along the way? Yeah. yeah, and I, I think it goes with a caveat that you really want to really have this infrastructure or build it out if you have a really good understanding of what you're doing, what you're, what value you're creating for your users, mm. uh, because you know, as I think a lot of people have 
just so much data. Some people will in, in the region they'll have just too much you know, dashboards and they'll, they'll they'll have a lot of vanity metrics and things that yeah, just, sure. just just don't get you anywhere. Sure. You know? Yeah. I mean, so so. I mean, you can have dashboards and all that, but if they're not actionable, yes, right, then there's no point of having them, right? So your main goal is to have actionable dashboards. And then what is your view in terms of non-data-driven decision? Because there's always people and parts of functions on teams that are a critical part as well, and you have to kind of marry them to the data. So how would you do that? Mm, I... I hmm. Or are you a guy who believes it's only data, data, data? No, I mean, some things... You have to go with your gut sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, so that was one of the things that I really do miss from Facebook is our infrastructure. Um, our infrastructure was set up really easily to create dashboards, to get data, to build the charts that we need, right? Um, when you're doing a startup nowadays, you got to set up the infrastructure to do that, else it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to start from somewhere, right? Did Zuck know that you needed data from the beginning? Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to start with gut somewhere, but if you can get data as soon as possible, just go for it. And if your gut, I think the hard part though is when you call it quits, right? Yeah, when do you call it quits? That one, yes. that one, I think you, that one's up to the individual. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to say, yeah. but you definitely, uh, it's a gamble. It's a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Your gut is a hypothesis that this will work. Uh, you test it out, you trial, and you experiment. Hmm. Okay. And so let's, let's get back to your story. Um, this is around mid-2016. How were you feeling back then? Terrible. <laughs> why, why were you feeling terrible? Um, I mean, you're in Facebook uh, about five, six years at this point? Yeah, six years. Coming six, to six years. Coming to six uh, years. Did amazing things. Part of a great team. What was happening? Mm. Mismanage expectations. Uh, Mismanage expectations for myself. Um, I was burning out. I was, I was burning out. I because I was burning out, I was under delivering, and then I try to put more work into it, and then it's a vicious cycle, Mm, right? Spirals. It just spirals from there, and I wasn't mature enough to realize it at the time. I thought. And sometimes it works. You put in more hours, it solves the problem. Mm. Sometimes when you put more hours, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. And I think I was in that vicious cycle of putting more hours in, but not solving it. Um, I, yeah, I, those were some of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess sometimes instead of putting more hours, you could, could just step away maybe. Yeah, I should have stepped away. Oh, I mean, so now that we're talking about it, I'm re- remembering a little bit more as well. So because I was one of the, I was one of the starting engineers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everyone knew me. Because everyone knew me, I was also, I also made myself accessible and I had a huge problem of saying no, mm-hmm. right? Um, because, you know, hey, people need help. All right, sure, I'll help you. Uh, because people know that I've been contributing to this. Uh, I'm a lead. Uh, people come to me naturally, right? Um, and because you want to see the success of this project, you don't say no. You just keep saying yes. You say yes, you say yes, you say yes. And eventually you have too many yeses than you can manage. And I really didn't know how to manage that at a time. Um, yeah. So so that was an, another one of my own personal problems. Then how did you kind of come to that decision that it was time to leave? That sounds like a very tough decision. That was... Uh it was an extremely tough decision. Uh, Facebook really changed my life. I am here where I am here today because of it. Um, I hit 30 at the time, and I knew at 30 I wanted to make a drastic life choice. Uh, I thought I would take a year off, but I left Facebook as well. So 
what had happened under Facebook was because I was under delivering, I was my performance was below expectations, and that triggered a series of things which with HR, which caused a whole bunch of problems for me. Mm-hmm. Um, they put me. So being five years in the company, I'm supposed to be awarded a one month paid leave. That's a for you know your five year loyalty. Yeah. You're awarded one month paid leave. Um, so because of my underperformance, HR wanted to put me under a performance improvement plan. Um, I was like, okay, makes sense, right? I'm underperforming, but I know I can't perform again. Yeah, right. It's whether I want to or not. So before the performance improvement plan, I asked, hey, trying to remember the details. Uh, Before the performance improvement plan, um, I actually thought about changing teams. Uh, I thought starting fresh in a new team would be healthy for me. Uh, New beginnings, but still within the Facebook ecosystem. Um, But I was restricted to move teams because of my poor performance. And because... I started looking around that also triggered HR to put an eye on me and look at my poor performance, which triggered the performance improvement plan or PIP for short. Yeah. Um, I was like, all right, so I guess I have to do this PIP. And I tried to gauge, you know, like I asked them a few questions. Um, Can I take my awarded one month leave before I do the PIP? You know, take a break so that I have the energy to do the PIP. They told me no. Okay. I'm like, okay, so I'm burning out. And if you give me a breather, you know, I, I yeah. can perform again, right? Uh, so they told me no. I remember asking a few things. Uh, bear with me while I recall what they are. Um, I remember asking, can I change teams after I do the PIP? They told me yes. Um, I also talked to uh, Javier. Mm-hmm. I messaged Javier like, hey, do you think you could help me out with regards to the taking the awarded leave before the PIP, mm-hmm. right? He says, rules are rules. There's mm-hmm. nothing nothing we can do. I asked a bunch of other people who I've been working with for like six years or so, is there anything you can do? They said, there's nothing can be done. And the truth is, I know they've done this before. They've broken the rules before, essentially. Um, Isn't that their motto? Break the rules? Break the rules, move fast, break things. Uh, move fast, <laughs> break things, yeah, but... Uh, that's a different story. Um, so as I started doing the PIP, as I was put under the PIP program, um, my motivation dropped. And there was already in the middle of the PIP. The PIP was about a month, two months. During the middle of the PIP, I was already flustered. I was like, you know what? I told my manager on a Monday, I want to resign by the end of the week. Um, he's like, all right, just send me a formal email. I think by Wednesday, something triggered in me. I was like, hey, uh, you know what? Let me just finish this PIP. Let me get this done with. At least I can say I've done the PIP. Um, I've ticked it off. And it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of, can I not do it? Um, I have the ability to do it. All right. Can I succeed again? Um, And I succeed. I passed the PIP. Um, I passed the PIP. And then, you know, um, oh yeah, I remember now some of the things. some things I asked them was, hey, can I can I take the my leave before I do the PIP? They said no. I asked them, can I take the leave after I pass mm. the PIP? They also said no. I'm mm. like, I showed you I perform. Yeah. Can't you just give me a break? Yeah. Um they told me before I do the PIP, I can change teams afterwards. 
right? So I finished a pip and I asked them, I started looking around for teams and I thought of WhatsApp, WhatsApp's Facebook, but also not Facebook at the same time. So when I started talking to the WhatsApp uh, people, um, they told me, oh, you cannot change teams because of your previous performance review. I'm like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) I feel like technically it's a different HR, but I feel like, dude, I just being being led around now. And this happened over a period of six months, right? So I, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That news from uh, WhatsApp, like, hey, you pass, you cannot switch teams because of it. It's like, so I follow your rules for six months and I still get penalized by it. Yeah. Like, why? There's no loyalty anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I've given you six years of my life. Um, I think the trade-off has been, I think they made a much better trade-off than I did, but mm-hmm. I definitely pulled myself out. Um, so no loyalty from the HR, no loyalty from the people I helped enrich. Why yeah. stay on? It almost sounds like they kind of developed into this culture of not tolerating failure. Yeah, which is you know kind of weird, you know where they kind of come from, and maybe a hyper aggressive culture of uh, always, especially because you're part of the growth team, yeah. uh, always needing to to you know uh, mm. be aggressive and, and grow, 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 grow nonstop, right? Without really thinking. Um, do you think that's unhealthy? Or I mean, it's definitely unhealthy, but yeah, you know, without a doubt, it's definitely unhealthy. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's any way you could have handled this better, or I mean, is, do you think it's a lot of more systemic problems with Facebook that they probably should be addressing? I would say it's a systemic problems with Facebook. Um, definitely, I could have handled it better. I. I, we, here's, uh, we being me and my manager, we didn't know the consequences of being in a pip, right? Mm. We, if you had told me before the underperformance that I would have lost my one month paid leave yeah. or it have caused issues trying to change teams, um, if I knew the repercussions of underperformance, yeah. sure, I would have probably performed a lot better, yeah. right? Um, but I'm also looking for the humane side of things, right? I've been in the same org for six years, my whole time there. I've been in the same team for four years. Like, can't you guys give me a bit of a break? Yeah. Right. Uh, it's not like I've been in the team for six months. That's correct. Right. Yeah, you put your work in. I put, I felt like I put the time and effort in. And this is, yeah. there's no, this is how you want to treat me afterwards. I just felt like another number after that. And maybe it's something for Facebook, whoever, to look at this because it's, it, you know, not having that kind of tolerance or flexibility or understanding. You know, right. Definitely so, it's not good for retention. Sure. Uh, so what I was told was after, so during my exit interview, I left this feedback back. Um, apparently some things have changed. Um, mm. For example, with the PIP, well, sorry, with the leave, you had to have at least one year's worth of good, of expected performance yeah. for you to be able to take your leave. Now that's down to half a year. So apparently that's better than nothing. That's true. Um, that's better than one year. Um, but yeah, I... I just expected more from them for giving them six years um, on the same, essentially the same team, Mm -hmm. same org. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, I guess, you know, but at the same time, Facebook did also give you an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a trade-off, right? Yeah. That was a trade-off. So, and then, so post Facebook, um, what were you doing? Can you walk me through some of the things, right? So this is like uh, 2016. Mid July. Yeah. Yeah. I left Facebook. I joined Facebook June 1st, 2010. I left Facebook June 12th, 2016. Um, that's only, what, eight days ago. Yeah. yeah. The anniversary was eight days ago. Um, so from middle of 2016 to middle of 2017, 
I was lost. Uh, I left Facebook extremely burned out, extremely exhausted. Um, I've luckily I've been financially successful because of my time at Facebook. So the hard part now though was what do you do when you can do anything you want? When you have the financial freedom to, when you don't have any responsibilities. I didn't have kids, I didn't have any loans. Um, and based on my estimates, um, I could go on working, not working for another 20 years. Mm. What do you do when you have all this freedom? I don't know. Um, You're kind of reverting back to where the position you were in when you were a child. A little. Yeah, but now I had the money. Uh, but now you have money. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the dangerous part, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you call it? Uh, the financial... Uh, Disposable income, baby. Yes, yes. disposable income without the responsibilities and the time. Yes. Uh, I didn't have a day job to keep me away. Uh, So (sighs) leaving Facebook was a huge existential crisis for me. A huge part of my identity was tied to my Facebook career. Uh, It defined who I am um, in a not healthy way. Yeah. Um, But, you know, if... And not only that, but if I didn't have a job, if I didn't have any expectations on me, where would these expectations come from? Where would I go next? So this really goes back to my kid, my youth, where I I used to ask a lot of existential questions. Um, but now, hitting 30 at a time, I hitting 30 at a time, being a lot older, I started approaching the problem from a software engineer perspective, right? Um, having a lot more experience under me. So for the first few months, July, August, um, I spent it in US and I knew I wanted to come back to Malaysia for a few months. Uh, I came back to Malaysia September 2016 and spent four, spent another six months with my family before going back to US. Uh, one thing, um, yeah, so before going back to US, I went back to US in February 2017 and then I found a job back in June 2017. Mm-hmm. But one of the things within that one year period is this existential crisis. How do you deal with it? Um, all these larger questions. What should I do? Who am I? Um, you know, what do you do when you don't have the pressure of money on you? Yeah. Um, I started being very systematic about these existential questions. And what began as a, probably what began as a Apple Notes became uh, Apple notes of a list of questions became a Google spreadsheet of a list of questions. And eventually it became a website with a list of questions, which up to this today in the past four years probably has about 80,000 questions on it. Um, And this actually this process of writing down each question and just taking a moment to sit with the question or sit with with a particular keyword and try to understand your beliefs around it um, really helped to transform my thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was my... Uh, the project is called Deep Thought. It's still online. Um, I don't actively r- use it anymore, but it's always interesting to go back um, and you know just look at what are questions. Sometimes I still add a few questions. Sometimes something triggers something that I feel like I need to sit down and answer with. Um, but the great part about building a website and building a system is that I can control or I can manage how I want to look at the information that I've written out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I love this project. You know, it's it's a, a point of deep reflection in your yes. life. And, yes. And then, you know, part of the reason why I also want to explore themes in this podcast is because you know I'm coming off you know eight nine years of. <laughs> You know, building companies in Southeast Asia, and you know, you, you gotta sometimes also think about what you want to do next because you know you're not getting younger. Yeah. You want to be very purposeful with what, what you choose, and um, you know, I really appreciate you sharing those those thoughts. And I think uh, deep was it deep thought deep app dot com. Uh, okay, deep thought app dot com. Um, what is your biggest takeaway from deep thought then, or maybe something that you would like to share? There's a lot of takeaways. Um, the the biggest takeaway for me was really learning to learning how to question things differently, learning to look at things from a different angle. Um, I think that's definitely one of the biggest takeaways for me personally from this process. Um, how do certain words uh, change the impact of a question? Yeah, so that's has had a huge impact for me. Um, there are a lot of other takeaways as well, though. Um, it's been a while since I looked at this project. So I think some of the most, some of the interesting parts though is returning back to some of the questions. So let's talk about some of the questions. Um, one of my first questions was, what do you want to be the very best at? Mm. Yeah. How about yourself, Alex? You know, what is it? I'm still exploring that idea as well. <laughs> right. So that question came upon me because for a few things, um, the first part is the line actually comes from the Pokemon song. I want to be the very best oh, that wow. ever was like <laughs> no one was before. Yeah. Uh, July 2016, Pokemon Go was launched and yeah. Pokemon was popular again. Um, I was a huge Pokemon fan as a kid. So that's why, this, that's why this line sort of stuck with me. And here's Ash Ketchum. You know, like he wants to be the very best at something. Right? He wants to be the very best Pokemon trainer. Here I am unlimited possibilities I don't want to do anything I don't want to be the best at anything anymore um, so I, that was one of my guiding questions one of my north stars I was trying to answer and so I started asking people this question um, and you get some very interesting responses <sighs> I wish I prepped for this I can't remember some of them uh, but the interesting part for me was um, the response you get they would always vary from people to people um, and I think what we should be doing is we should be talking about these deeper questions with each other. Yeah. So that's why I built this platform. So you can actually see that's one of my questions. What do you want to be the very best at? And you can see other people's responses there. Mm-hmm. Um, let me try to recall. Uh, some people said they want to be the best dad, um, which actually would lead up to my next question. One of my other guiding questions was, what would you teach your children? How about you, Alex? What would you teach your children? Oh, man, there's so many things to do to teach, I guess. Um, more, more importantly, how to be a good person, I think. Sure. Right. And that, that's very broad, right? You know, how, how you treat people, how you talk to them, how you respect them. Um, uh, you know, different ways of, of learning. Mm-hmm. So if you if you equip them with the basic tools, I guess on on how they could iterate through life, and sure. a lot of it probably would come from what I felt I was missing, I guess. Sure. Uh, growing up, you know, uh, maybe providing some more discipline, <laughs> these kinds of things. <laughs> can relate. I can yeah. relate. Uh, maybe more languages or something like this, right? Um, but I guess uh, essentially, one, you know, how to take care of yourself, how to take care of yourself, mm. and 
and that, that can mean many things too, and, which is, I guess, also tied deeply to what you'd want to probably uh, value in life. Sure. Right? And then eventually, um, you know, how to be good. I would love to dive into your answer, um, but that's that's one of the beauties I like about these questions is that there's a lot to dive with the right response. There's a lot to dive into it. Yeah. Um, it opens up one question, opens up more questions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like this particular question. You know, what do you want to? What would you like to teach your children? Because it tells me what lessons you have learned in life. What are the stronger lessons you have learned in life that you would want to impart? I've met someone who says, I wouldn't teach them anything. And I'm like, really? I'm sure you've probably burned a few bridges or messed up a few things in life that you'd want to teach your children, right? Um, So to me, that question is a huge eye-opener to see what has this person experienced in life that they would like to impart on. Um, yeah, makes for a great interview question. <laughs> I think it does, really. Um, you know, one one of my dreams was if I ran this as an actual business, would be to ask people, you know, these questions themselves because it would be a great preparation, right? It sounds like it could be a very interesting product. You know, something. Like I that. think it still can. It's yeah. just whether I want to put the effort. Yeah, of yeah. course, of course. Yeah, yeah. So deep thought. It's a website full of questions. It's mostly me answering them, but I will always stumble on. There are there have been other people answering questions as well, which is even more fascinating. Is what brought them to the site that such that they want to answer a question? Um, And the way I try to design it a little bit is I don't try to follow the standard social network design where you put the person's name first and their profile picture first because you will judge a book by its cover no matter what. So I put. Well, I have the question and then I put the answer first and then you only at the end you see the name and the profile picture and what I realized doing that kind of design is because you've, when you scroll you see the answer first you're forced to read what they're writing so you don't judge based on who is writing it and sometimes I'm like this person is like oh that's that's interesting and I realized wait a minute this person isn't me right or this person is this person I didn't expect yeah. right so that's one of the interesting parts um, one of the interesting triggers of that yeah okay and then so you had this great reflection and a lot I'm of still pro- going through you know, it. yeah you're still going through it but you're framing a lot of um, these existential questions you're answering after you know post Facebook yes so then how does that lead into what you're doing today right is it going to talk about your current job now or I don't know. Are we getting there? <laughs> we're, we're, we're there. It doesn't, share. I won't say it leads to that per se, but the managing of the existential crisis, the managing of, um, the managing of certain keywords or concepts. Like for example, uh, for example, the keyword sacrifice. Um, as I mentioned previously, I want it all. You know, I want, I want to live in the city, but I want a quiet life. Mm. You know, you can't necessarily have both, right? Yeah, to, to a degree, yeah. unless you're, it's an MCO period. <laughs> yeah. um, you, to some degree, you can't have both. I want, yeah. So there are trade-offs. There are sacrifices to be made. I want the salary of working US, but I want to be in Malaysia. I can't have it both. So a sacrifice has to be made. Um, and I had to come to terms with the trade-offs. Um, and handling their existential crisis has definitely helped me come to terms with it better. Um, and me building this platform, Deep Thought, has actually helped enable me to build other tools for myself as well. Um, one of the things I like 
uh, about building deep thought is, and not treating it as a product, is that uh, even if nobody uses it, as long as I'm still the largest beneficial benefactor of this, I still win. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I don't need anyone to use this. As long as I'm able to refine my thought processes, as long as I'm able to, you know, improve my thinking or improve my question set, um, or even analyze questions or answers from years ago, I will still have one. One of the interesting parts I built into the system is being able to see uh, on this particular day, what did I answer on this particular day? So I can see who I was three, four years ago based on my answers then. And it's part of, it's like a snapshot of myself. Mm. So imagine if I answered this same question now, the answer may be the same or it may be different. And I find it actually really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you can you see, you can potentially see growth in that regard. There's growth in your thinking, yes. growth in you as a person, things that you value, I guess, yes. will change over time. Okay, so and then now you're uh, currently working for a company called Xverse. That's correct. Uh, what, what is Xverse? Xverse is a fintech company based in Singapore. Okay, yeah. and what do they do? See, we do a lot of things. Um, we do, we help enable crypto companies. We help enable crypto companies um, do trading in Singapore. Uh, we do KYC as well uh, for both Indonesia and Singapore. Um, yeah, so those are a few of the things. What is your current position there? I'm an engineering manager at Xverse. Yeah, okay. so I manage the identity team. So mm-hmm. things under uh, KYC. What was it like interviewing in Southeast Asia versus interviewing <laughs> in Silicon Valley? Very simple. Silicon Valley, um, the good part about being a, so a Facebook software, ex-Facebook software engineer is I just have to raise my hand and I get attention, Yeah. right? So in Silicon Valley, I had a lot of people, um, everyone wants me, right? Yeah. Um, so in Silicon Valley, the talent is definitely a lot higher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're treated sort of just like any other engineer, yeah. which is fair. There's a lot of Facebook of engineers around. In Southeast Asia, dude, I raise my hand and everyone wants to talk to me. Um, and that's also pretty dangerous as well, right? Yeah. Uh, but you get to talk to all the C-levels, yeah. right? Um, which is great. So you get you get to talk to the higher levels, but it's the maturity is different as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I guess working in both Silicon Valley and Asia now, what are some of the bigger differences that stick out to you? Data. It goes back to data. Back to I think data. we're not uh, we're not looking at enough data here. Yeah. Um, culture as well. I think Silicon Valley generally has more hackers. They um, they do tech things outside of work. Uh, the quality in Silicon Valley is definitely much higher. Um, just just because they've been doing it there much longer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then uh, what what challenges uh, are you facing today that are just so vastly different than Facebook? But there must be something very new and challenging that, that you didn't think about. Well, as in, so, oof, this is very specific for being a Facebook uh, employee. So working at Facebook, you work using Facebook infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You don't use AWS, GCP. Yeah. Um, so these are other platforms. Yeah. Um, so your skill set is really tied to the Facebook infrastructure and it's not transferable 
to these other infrastructures that startups use. So that was one of the challenging things for me personally was trying to understand these other infra that I've never used before. Mm-hmm. Um, right, there's a lot of maturity that is lost as well. I, Facebook had a really great engineering culture, and to teach people here what trying to teach someone here what they don't know is really hard and showing them that there is a better way to do things and trying to enforce it is very hard as well. It's definitely a new type of human challenge, I guess. Yeah, it's a a huge gap in human challenges. Yeah, Yeah. I I would love to get into that maybe for for another day. Sure. Engineering and human side. But um, I guess this brings us to our time. And uh, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, You want to talk, you know, your company experts? Anything you can help you with or maybe closing advice for the audience? You can apply to experts. I just always that yeah, plug. Yeah. So you're looking for more engineers. We're always looking. Everyone's looking for engineers. Uh, what kind of engineers are you looking um, for? All kinds: mobile, back end, front end. Okay, so right, uh, if you can code, talk to me. Any yeah. kind of coding, or do you want a specific stack? Uh, I don't, personally, I don't really care. I want someone who's flexible. You okay. know, like if you just want to do GoLang and you're very focused on GoLang, that's great for you. I want someone who's flexible. I want. I look more at the attitude more than the. Uh, ability. If you have the attitude to learn, it doesn't really matter what stack yeah. we throw you on. Sounds great. Okay. Uh, any advice then, or I, I don't know. Uh, it's pretty open ended, right? Yeah. So I think one of the things you mentioned um, from my slide deck was the hack, 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 code, 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 and it's still, it's still really true. So one of the greatest things about being fun employed for the last three, four years is I spent a majority of that time coding as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my growth in the last three, four years, I think has been pretty exceptional um, in terms of learning new languages, frameworks, but it's all practical coding and pushing myself yeah. to learn new things and never and trying not to be comfortable. So don't be comfortable, keep hacking, keep doing it. Keep yeah. Going. All right. Thank you for being on the show today. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, listeners. Isaac's story is a great example where traditional school didn't work well for him. However, he never stopped hacking and coding once he picked it up. He was always solving problems and practically applying his skills in the real world, which eventually worked out when the stars aligned and Facebook acquired Octazen. The rest is history, as you heard. As the cliche quote goes, success is where preparation and opportunity meet. If you haven't hit a home run yet, keep persisting and solving those hard problems and keep your eye out when opportunity arises. If you like this episode, please share it to social media and go to entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcast to find the transcript and other show notes and analysis. Comment and feedback so we can keep on improving. See you back here for next week.